Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Mirror Universe Different Drummers. title of this show is a bit of a mouthful, but the idea behind it is to say, what if after all of these years, almost 10 years of podcast recording, give or take, of naming a different drummer in every episode after the first two introductory shows, I decide that instead of holding people in unconditional positive regard and lifting up those I've found inspirational, what would it look like if the moment of the show where I make the shout out, if the different drummer, for example was someone whose impact was extremely negative and well-deserving of denunciation? What if it was a critical rather than a praising entry? We'll get to that during the show. I guess the first thing I would say is when I made a post about this uh, early on, maybe going back as late as August, to say I'm really thinking about taking a look at the other side of the coin here on people of influence, people whose behavior in this case might be so bad that it influences me in the opposite direction. So there's still a positive outlook to calling out people who are well-deserving of criticism. I think I drew some concern from some listeners that maybe I was going to be going negative for a long time. That's not the case. In fact, I think in this episode, I'm going to offer some apologetic and unqualified praise for a different drummer, which is something I normally don't do. I hope I do a good job of trying to find the good with the bad and the bad with the good and to call out why I'm still positive, why I still hold the people I allow to influence me in some unconditional positive regard after weighing everything one way or the other. The Mr. Rogers episode, Inappropriate Conversations 212, from a couple years ago in September, is probably an excellent example of this. That is certainly not a different drummer segment or an episode that offers unqualified, consistently positive praise to Fred Rogers. And yet there's also no mistaking by the end of the show that he is, in my opinion, clearly worthy of being called out as an influencer and a different drummer all the same. But there are negative influencers as well, and I tend to get to them first, then the different drummer last, in terms of the sequence of the show. In doing research for this particular episode, especially the different drummer, I needed to look back at Inappropriate Conversations number 191, which I called False Political Prophecies. I think it was the first recording after the 2016 election. And again, looking back at it, I can tell just from a little bit of listening that the results of that election had weighed on me. They were a surprise to me. And in fact, I know that at least one former different drummer who I would identify as a podcaster has stopped podcasting. And I think part of that was um, her just kind of so taken aback by election night 2016 that she set down the headphones, and to my knowledge, hasn't picked them up since. I didn't do that. But Walk the Earth, as a podcast, the other podcast on this feed at Inappropriate Conversations, did take a good solid six-month hiatus, because it was very hard for me to say things in the result of that election and in the context of that particular show. But on the chance that maybe some of the things I'm working on create a different audience, and some people who are encountering Inappropriate Conversations for the first time through this show, which is going to look back at kind of the past a little bit, 
Maybe that's a great way to start. Not sure. But a word of introduction might help. Every show that I've ever recorded can be found at inappropriateconversations.org. That is true to some degree, although for the first time I am looking at certain episodes that I may pull down. They're not being pulled down for reasons of sound quality. In fact, I intend to keep the evolution of the show in place. I don't really intend to uh, to cover up the progress that has been made. Let's put it that way. But there are a few shows that I'm going to look at from the perspective of, if I make a jump to Spotify, maybe they should no longer be on the website, no longer be on the feed. Uh, that's going to be something I'm going to learn as I go. So we'll see what happens. It's not a guarantee that I'll take 15 or 16 shows down. But if I do, I wanted to kind of provide a word of, of a heads up for people about it. Because just in the last couple of months, in the August live podcast at Pride 48 uh, in New Orleans, I provided a handout of all of the past different drummers, the episode number, the approximate release date, to help people who might be interested in looking back at past shows from the perspective of the different drummer segment. that would be a little bit easier for them to find. Now, at inappropriateconversation.org, there is a category index, and I use that to categorize different drummers. So if someone wanted to look up past people who I've categorized as fine arts or as musicians, you can click and isolate that way. Use the website, the Podbean website, that way. For me, it was more about if I knew a specific name of somebody, if I knew that a past show had talked about Francis of Assisi, how would I find that quickly? I then took that list that I used as a handout in August, and in September kind of carved it up and posted it as blog posts online at inappropriateconversations.org. And the irony is that from August through the beginning of October, I've done a lot to call out these past different drummers, but there's a very real risk that before we get to the end of November, some of those shows citing those different drummers could be gone. I've got my reasons, and as I experience what it means to uh, move the show or make the show available on Spotify, as I learn from that, I'll share more of that in a future episode in just terms of how that experience went. One of the steps I've taken is to move this uh, the bitrate of this audio blog up to 96 from 64. As a single speaker show, it's been perfectly fine at 64, but one of the Spotify requirements is a higher bitrate. So I've done that for the past four maybe episodes. This will be the fifth. And that's preparing me for clicking the button and saying, hey, let's provide inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth up there. For what it's worth, Walk the Earth, the other podcast on this feed, was initially started to document a transition from from my family from one church to another. And it is not a week-by-week church visit kind of a show. Uh, It's also not, I would not describe it as deeply theological either. But the process of looking at different denominations, different congregations, different modes of worship, uh, led to questions. And as I addressed those questions, I spoke about the process of trying to do a church search in the context of answering those questions. And of course, long since that process completed, and we moved from one denomination to another, well, the questions persisted, so walk the earth, persisted. Inappropriate conversations, for anyone new, was born of the idea that we're not served well by keeping things like politics, religion, and popular culture strictly separated. This show is more about the idea of bringing those things together and managing the conflict that does inevitably occur. But it is possible, in a topic like birth control, for example, to ask the question of right-wing Christians, what did Jesus actually say about birth control? And how do we, rec- how do we reconcile what Jesus didn't say with what Jesus actually did? And there are past episodes dealing with topics like birth control, where I talk in some detail about what 
what the Bible actually says Jesus might have actually done in the realm of what we might in our modern era call the management of hormonal birth control. So it's kind of bringing these things together in an uncomfortable way and kind of often as not, but not always, forcing people who call themselves conservative politically, but I think I can easily demonstrate are not conservative theologically, or at least not scripturally, because they don't take the Bible serious enough to recognize that the hallucinations that St. Peter saw, as recorded in Acts chapters like 10-11, that area, were kind of an indication that whatever the Old Testament might have said about things which are clean versus unclean absolutely no longer apply. And it isn't a gigantic leap to apply Peter's experience of animals he was or was not allowed to eat because the Jewish law had been replaced by faith in Christ with making that same argument about how the church should be relating to gays, lesbians, trans people, and so on. The things that conservative Christians are so convinced remain biblically unclean, well, there's no way to really reconcile that with St. Peter's experience and with things Paul had to say in Romans 13. So that's kind of how an Inappropriate Conversations show typically works. This one may be a touch more meta in the sense that what I'm doing intentionally is talking about the show itself, looking backward and asking questions like, are there past different drummers that I've put online that are going to have to disappear? And should I give people a heads up if they want to find those episodes and find those shows? Yes. And the other thing, which I'll get to in a moment, is are there some past different drummers that I've got some issues with? I saw a post online just this week that was writing kind of author to author. And the question was, isn't it a really high probability that at some point you've either gotten a recommendation to your book or made an acknowledgement within your book to somebody that you are now a little bit embarrassed you associated yourself with? That maybe at the time that acknowledgement was real and true and legit, but since then you're not really a big fan of what they've been up to. Um, the election in 2016, I think, has operated as something of a litmus test. I could say separating people who are Christ followers like me from people who use Christianity as a brand name only. You could even use the no true Scotsman fallacy and talk about who's a real Christian and who's not a real Christian, that sort of thing. I thought, I thought about that in the context of different drummers, because if I'm going to look at the question of, well, who would I be calling out if I was naming different drummers that should be denounced? Well, maybe I should look backward and look at some different drummers that maybe I'm a, I'm a bit embarrassed about. But first, the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, which I think could be at risk of not remaining on the website anymore. They may remain on inappropriateconversations.org if I can swing it, but if I don't want them to be on Spotify, if I choose to no longer have them on Podbean, here are the different drummers that would disappear. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a way to find the name of a different drummer of, of interest and look at recent articles posted at inappropriateconversations.org to find the corresponding episode and the date of the release of the episode if you wanted to track it down while you still can. Now, I know I may be crying wolf here. This may play out in such a way that I have a lot more control over how links flow to Spotify, and I may therefore decide to use, uh, decide to keep everything on the Podbean side and then just divvy it out to Spotify carefully. I just don't know that yet. Again, we'll... I'll share that evolution kind of real time in upcoming episodes. But just in the interest of early and full disclosure, episodes online recorded in the last nine or ten years that could be removed from public access 
include the following different drummers. Henry Rollins, George Frederick Handel, T-Bone Burnett, Joseph Haydn. Don't know why I'm picking on the classical musicians, but it just turns out to be true. Rod Serling, Molly Harvey, Rory Guy, also known as Angus Scrim, Dee Snyder, Giselle McKenzie, Stitch, the Experiment 626 character from the Disney films, Hugo Weaving, Neil Young, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Claudette Colvin, Larry Kerwin, and Leonard Cohen. If you look at that last set of names, they are all from the Sound Of series, released in 2017, as something of a musical response to the election results in 2016. That's my take on the different drummers I don't want to lose that I still fear that I may just lose anyway. So, what do I want to do from the perspective of the different drummers that I I have some second guesses and some doubts about? Well, I look back at the past and I divided them into two camps. One is issues, where I probably do have some issues with what these different drummers represent in the full. And if I were to weigh the scales again today, maybe the scales would tip in the other direction. It's kind of what I did in the Intersections in the Neighborhood episode that focused on Fred Rogers and uh, Francois Clemens as different drummers. As I looked at the things that I liked and the things that I didn't, weighed them up, and it was obvious to me that the the pros well outweighed the cons. And sometimes it's a little bit more tricky than that. I mean, I think I probably said right at the beginning of Inappropriate Conversations 33 that if I was going to name Hank Hanacraft, the president and CEO of the Christian Research Institute, as a different drummer, that I was doing so knowing that there were already things I knew I didn't like. I mentioned with Oz Ganes, Inappropriate Conversations 72, uh, I believe that one was Truth or Consequences for Christians, that he, maybe above any of the ones I'd recorded so far uh, at that 72nd show, was one of the different drummers who had the greatest potential to embarrass me, to make me want to retract the entry. That actually didn't turn out to be true. The different drummer I have retracted in one way or another my praise for is John Eldridge. I named him as a different drummer in Inappropriate Conversations 45, and I still believe that looking at weaknesses and issues in our traditional views of masculinity, that he had something to say that made him a worthwhile different drummer for that particular episode. But I spent almost the entirety of Inappropriate Conversations number 106, Violence as Denial, kind of retracting and harshly criticizing and justifiably at times even denouncing, almost at times mocking that different drummer. So there's different drummers in the past I've had issues with. The oldest one that I think I'd look back on and say, you know what, you take the bad with the good, Larry Wingett, Inappropriate Conversations 26, a Labor Day-focused show suggesting it might have been issued in September of 2010, late August certainly, or September. And, you know, Wingett has great qualities. I've, I did a Books You Should Read episode about him for simplysyndicated.com when that network existed. And I stand by the content of that book review. I might even share a little bit of a clip at the end of that book review on Inappropriate Conversations 100, which looked at the origins of this show. It's a bit of an origin story look back to the history of Inappropriate Conversations. But you know, one of the common denominators, I think, between Wingett and Oz Ganes is despite the fact that in the realm of business, Wingett's got a lot of valuable things to say. And in the realm of theology or... Uh, our Christian walk, Oz Ganes has had and maybe still does have some valuable things to say. 
their ridiculous and blind support for President Trump is a bit of a deal breaker. You have got to be able to, especially in the case of Guinness, you have got to be able as a Christian leader to look at the crimes that have been committed, the subjugation of the U.S. Constitution, interfering with the balance of powers, flouting court rulings and when it comes to things like subpoenas and betraying our norms, locking immigrant children in cages, kidnapping those children, deporting their parents, keeping the kids here. I mean, there's enough here that rises to the level of war crimes, which at the very least suggests that, you know, wanton, unwavering support for him is ridiculous. And that is the category that I would put Winget and Guinness in. I've already spoken my piece about John Eldridge, I have very positive feelings about Inappropriate Conversations 106 and would support anyone taking uh, 75 to 90 minutes and look back on that. As far as Hank Hanegraaff is concerned, you know, he has consistently in the past been a very vocal and outspoken critic of presidents of the United States that he disagrees with. If he thought that Bill Clinton was taking the country in the wrong direction morally, he spoke up. He was far more quiet about the documented and unmitigated lies coming out of the George W. Bush administration. Uh, Once again, a very loud and vocal critic of Barack Obama and relatively quiet about Trump. Sheepish, even, in some ways. So it's one thing to say you're going to separate your politics from your religion. That is not what I do. It's not what I endorse. But if you're not going to do that, you really can't do it selectively and avoid accusations of hypocrisy. And that's where we are. So different drummers in the past that I've got serious doubts about whether or not it's that acknowledgement thing that it made sense to call them out in the context of the topic I was dealing with. But at the end of the day, when you weigh it all again, the cons may outweigh the pros, in some cases pretty dramatically. But if I were in the the idea of a mirror universe, this is a Star Trek concept, Star Trek original series, Mirror Mirror was the name of that episode, where some sort of a parallel universe kind of uh, event, some sort of calamity in space, sent members of the crew, I think it was a transporter accident, into another version of the same Star Trek Enterprise, but a different universe's version, where the Enterprise was maybe part of a more militaristic empire, and uh, characters that were more rational and meek or irrational and dangerous, and ones that are more professional or far less professional. And so, sort of like um, looking at the other side of the coin, Starbase 66, one of the shows that I I continue to follow on the Infinite Diversity Network that had previously been on Simply Syndicated, that show had a uh, past Mirror Universe episode of its own with the main host playing very much against their type. So this is this notion of against type. So if I've, in the areas of uh, politics, religion, and popular culture named people that I feel positive about, that I think that we should pay some attention to, that are worthy of praise. If I tried to pick some really big names, or at least some really great examples of the other side of that coin, where would I go? And I'm going to drop four names in this context of Mirror Universe Different Drummer. I'm not going to treat them like a traditional different drummer and offer a short biography and a uh, and a shout-out, because this is really not that. I don't want people necessarily going out to seek these individuals. They are in many ways not worth our time. And unfortunately, they're in many ways uh, inescapably present at all times. They're in our face, they're in our hair, they're in our way. From a politics perspective, Mitch McConnell is the one that I would name. It's not that I'm going to buy the line 
that the current bad behavior of President Trump and clearly the conspiratorially joined behavior of other people like Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and uh, Attorney General William Barr, that all these people could be named. And I don't like the idea of just dismissing them all as some sort of a symptom of a bigger problem. But at the end of the day, if I could only pick one point to assess blame where we are right now, could you have this sort of toxic populism represented by people like Trump and as a country not be facing the same kind of constitutional peril we are? Well, Mitch McConnell is the reason we're in that peril. That if one person in the United States Senate simply behaved differently, if that person chose to love his country more than his political power, if his devotion was to the U.S. Constitution and not to lobbyist money, maybe even Russian lobbyist money, would he behave differently? And if he, as the leader of the majority in the United States Senate, stood up to bad behavior, held the current administrative branch of this country to an ethical standard, to almost any ethical standard at all, would it make a difference? I believe it would. I think that a lot of the people who represent states that I've lived in as United States senators, many of them currently GOP senators, are to one degree or another, and maybe it's a small degree, but to one degree or another, sniveling cowards. That they aren't standing up to their majority leader. They aren't standing up to their political party, in this case, or the president of the United States. But they probably would if someone with Mitch McConnell's tenure and power simply led or led appropriately, putting the country first and taking seriously that oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and its laws, to not sell us down the river to another country. Mitch McConnell is the cancer in our politics today. And you would have to get more cells and tissue than just him. But if you take the tumor out, you've made a huge stride. And if you take the tumor out, and then assess whether that cancer is spread to other tissues, and then secondarily go get those other tissues. But still, the priority is we're going in to get rid of the cancer. And if there's a cancer in American politics today, I think its last name is McConnell, and it's the senator from, the senator from Kentucky. So that's what I mean by mirror universe different drummer. And it may not be telling people anything that they didn't already know. I bet when I get to today's positive different drummer, I still might be telling some people things that they don't know. And one of the goals is, if I'm going to shout out somebody as a different drummer, I need to do it in a way that tells not just my story, why I feel that way, but also hopefully provide a perspective, whether it's remembering things from history or even relatively recent history, or just my point of view might be slightly different from everyone else's. It's part of the reason that I do it. But one of the other reasons I do it is, to use different drummer segments from time to time to sort of call people out, to lay out a gauntlet that we ought to be supporting so-and-so, and and if we're not, why not? One of the religion different drummers, like this is probably where politics and religion meet, happened very recently. On a YouTube channel that I don't follow called True News TV, a Christian broadcaster named Rick Wiles made some really bizarre statements. If you think about them from the perspective not of right-wing American politics, but of Christianity. In other words, if you take the religious right and separate it into its two pieces, the right-wing part of this man declaring that if the impeachment proceedings against Trump carry on, that there will be civil war and violence in the streets and 
mountain men and uh, gun owners everywhere will start slaughtering people, stuff like that. But if you try to imagine that being said from the pulpit of a mainstream Christian church in America today, it is shocking and offensive. I'm calling Rick Wiles out because he has so far been unapologetic about these statements. He doesn't recognize how completely out of context they are with everything that Jesus taught and frankly demonstrated. Jesus demonstrated dying on a cross at the hands of political machinations and empire, literally empire, rather than sending his people out to slaughter innocent folks in the street. But that's kind of what Rick Wiles was preaching. And I used it on, I think, October 23rd of this year, 2019, both on my personal Facebook page and on Twitter to basically say, I am waiting for the Christians in my world who are either supportive of Trump or voted for Trump or are still proudly Republican, which is not how I would describe myself necessarily, waiting for their denunciation of this. That, to be honest with you, if this person stood up in my church and delivered that same message from the pulpit, I would be calling for an emergency meeting of the Leadership Council. If I was part of a mainstream denomination like United Methodism, I would be having a conversation at the district superintendent and bishop's level to deal with that behavior. And yet, when I put it out there, I more or less insinuated that so-called Bible-believing Christians in my world were going to say absolutely nothing about this particular guy. They might compartmentalize him, which is something I've been describing as people doing a lot these days, and decide, well, it doesn't really matter what he thinks. He's not really a threat. He's, he's not really Christian. He's just a, he's broadcaster first, Christian second. I mean, I don't care how you compartmentalize this. If you, even if you're one of these Christians who looks at Christianity as little more than a brand, as an I'm like this thing, then you still have to wonder whether this guy's tarnishing your brand. But nobody here in the last week has said even a peep or a tweet criticizing Rick Wiles for his violent, incendiary, unchristlike language in the name of Christ as a self-alleged Christian broadcaster hosting a show on YouTube. Now, Rick Wiles is just doing the same thing that we've seen done countless times before. He's no different, really, from uh, Jerry Feltwell Jr., from the Pat Robertsons of the world, or the other person that I would be naming as a high-priority target if the different drummer segment was about somebody who was negative and needed to be denounced. If Mitch McConnell is the worst of the worst from a politics perspective, if he is currently the tumor on American politics that is killing our nation then Franklin Graham could perhaps be cited out above the Pat Robertson's, Jerry Falwells, and Rick Wileses of the world as somebody who purports to be actually a functioning Christian pastor leading a Christian ministry under the name of his father. You know, so you've got this whole you know, Billy Graham Ministries thing being tarnished by Franklin Graham's behavior and his uh, wanton dive into politics, his pollution of the gospel, his you know, anti-Christian theologies, suggesting, for example, during the controversy a few years ago over a professor at Wheaton College, that there are in fact multiple gods and that Muslims worship the wrong one. No one challenging this guy on what I would consider to be a non-mainline Christian theology. The Christian theology, and frankly the Orthodox Jewish theology, is that there is one God. And the one God may be experienced by different people, in different ways, in, diff in different contexts. And maybe there are legitimate disagreements among theistic religions about whether that God has spoken through Jesus or through Muhammad or only through the Old Testament prophets. 
there still has rarely been anyone who's come out very publicly and say that there are multiple gods in the universe. Franklin Graham is one of them. He received no criticism whatsoever from mainline Christianity. And to me, that's another sign that you're doing things which betray the sacred trusts and beliefs of whatever it is. Our religion, in the case of Franklin Graham, our country, our constitution, in the case of Mitch McConnell. I have not yet, nor ever will I forget or forgive the Merrick Garland nomination being handled as it was. And I've spoken about that in detail on past inappropriate conversations, including one I called at the time, Constitutional Crisis. I wonder if I'm not going to be having to weigh in the next months whether I need to have a new podcast called Constitutional Crisis 2. I've got a series out there called Proud to Know You, and at the time I did the series, I didn't really know for sure there would be a second one and a third one and a fourth one. We're not proud to know you for. I'm very happy that I've been able to put out such a series of positive thoughts in a succession of years over that one topic of pride. But I didn't really dream at the time I recorded one called Constitutional Crisis that there might be Constitutional Crisis 2. And we may, we may not be far there. And Franklin Graham has just as much accountability for that as Mitch McConnell does for the reason why. If you support the wrong things, you get bad results. Now, in McConnell's case, he's undermined the U.S. Constitution. But in Franklin Graham's case, he's clearly undermined the gospel and continues to undermine the gospel and continues to tarnish the, in my opinion, not quite perfect reputation of his father along the way. I say that because when I hear words like Samaritan's Purse today, because of Franklin Graham, I don't think of what an opportunity to give back to people in need. I think of if you participate in that, especially if you give cash, you're giving cash directly to the six-figure, high six-figure salary of Franklin Graham, who's done little more in his adult life than cash in on the legacy of his dad. Billy Graham has done things that I find offensive in the past. I cut him some slack. He's from a much older generation. But when it comes to the relationship of men and women and respect for women in the workplace and in the church, uh, Billy Graham's got a lot to answer for. He, his reputation does not deserve to be as sterling as perhaps it is. And how long will it remain sterling if his son continues to drag his faith down in the mud of politics? Does he really believe that when he's done, he's going to clean up the mud? Or does he not recognize, as Haggai taught in the Old Testament, that really the only thing you're going to accomplish there is betraying and polluting your faith? So I've dealt with politics and religion and in the case of Rick Wiles, maybe where politics and religion intersect, I'm not going to go the uh, popular culture, music, movies, drugs, rock and roll kind of angle here. I'm going to leave that one aside for now, partly because I'm still compartmentalizing that. There are honestly a lot of uh, bands, musicians, actors, directors that I pay attention to knowing that I respect their art. I don't respect the way they live their life. So what I want to do is, is in the realm of sex and human sexuality, and because I live in the state of Ohio, and unfortunately or fortunately, I don't live anywhere near the Cincinnati-Dayton part of the state, there is a bit of a north-south divide, in, even within the state of Ohio. If people wonder why Ohio can and does function so well as a bellwether state, it's in part because a lot of the things which are true nationally are true within the state. Ohio has a long coastline. It's not an oceanic coastline, and the beaches are probably nowhere nice as the ones in Florida and Hawaii, but Ohio has, has a long coastline with a beach and boating culture and a vacation culture. It's in the very northern part of the state. 
in the southern part of Ohio, you end up with that same sort of mix of conservative politics and agriculture that doesn't look terribly, terribly different from parts of the American South. And in this section of the state, between the northern part of Cincinnati and sort of the uh, the Indiana border and also getting closer and closer to Dayton, say within 45 to 50 minutes if you drive, between the county seat of Butler County, Hamilton, Ohio, and Dayton, Ohio, it's not going to take you an hour to get from one spot to another. And so when a state representative named uh, Candace Keller, who represents that district in the Hamilton part of Ohio in Butler County, says things, incendiary things, about a deadly mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, she's not making a call across the country to how much better we are than those people in California or Florida or El Paso, which would, of course, be horrifically wrong to do so. It's just even a little bit more pungent and offensive when you're talking about the suffering of people who are just a few miles away, when you're dismissing the suffering of people at the hands of a disgruntled, angry white male shooter and placing the blame everywhere else, including purportedly at some of the people that that shooter may have been intending to victimize. Sort of one of those situations where you're you're blaming the victim for being the victim. Now, I'm not just going to call out Candace Keller for a Facebook post she made earlier in the year. That that's uh, It doesn't seem like it escalates to the level of Mitch McConnell, Franklin Graham, for example. So what, what I'll do before I share part of her post, which I think speaks for itself in terms of why she deserves to be denounced, is provide a little bit of uh, context from USA Today. In an article that USA Today wrote about this in the aftermath of the shooting in Dayton earlier this year, they said this, Readers also won't be surprised to know that controversy, not legislative substance, has marked Keller's tenure. To name just five examples, she compared Planned Parenthood to Nazis. She appeared on a white power advocate's radio show. She introduced a bill that would make sanctuary schools illegal, a step that would strip cities and schools' ability to self-govern. She speculated that the divide over abortion will lead to a new civil war. Hello, Rick Wiles. You've got company in the Antichrist section of American Christianity. She co-sponsored a bill that would line her pockets, prompting calls for an ethics investigation. And she has been denounced for the post I'm about to share. But before I share the denunciation, first let me share the post, because it explains pretty well things that Candace Keller has in common with Pat Robertson, with Jerry Falwell Jr., with Rick Wiles, with Franklin Graham, and probably even with Mitch McConnell, which is a good reason to say there's a bit of a common theme, a bit of a repetitive theme in these mirror universe different drummer citations, and it lacks the variety that I actually try to seek and maintain in the shout-outs that I've traditionally done and will continue to do in a positive way. But first, we're talking about a Facebook post here. This was not an off-the-cuff emotional response to something set on the floor of the Ohio State House. This was a Facebook post. Now, granted, your average Facebook post for many people may not be something you would describe as well thought out and carefully delivered, but all the same, you're sort of publishing something, and it kind of matters. Here's what she said. After every mass shooting, the liberals start the blame game. Well, why not place the blame where it belongs? The breakdown of the traditional American family. Thank you, transgendered, homosexual marriage, and drag queen advocates. Fatherlessness, a subject no one discusses or believes is relevant. The ignoring of violent video games. The relaxing of laws against criminals like open borders. 
the acceptance of recreational marijuana, failed school policies, hello parents who defend misbehaving students, disrespecting to law enforcement, thank you Obama, hatred of our veterans, thank you professional athletes who hate our flag and national anthem, the dim Congress, Democrats in Congress, many members of whom are openly anti-Semitic, the culture which totally ignores the importance of God and the church until they elect president, state office holders who have no interest whatsoever in learning about our Constitution and the Second Amendment, and snowflakes who can't accept a duly elected president. Did I forget anybody? The list is long, and the fury will continue. This is the opinion willingly shared publicly via Facebook by Candace Keller, a member of the Ohio uh, Legislative Branch. So what was the reaction and result to this? Just about a day later, in fact, so credit to the Ohio Republican Party for that, Ohio Republican Party Chair Jane Temkin is urging GOP's Candace Keller to resign from her statehouse seat because of her shocking and utterly unjustifiable remarks, that's a quote of Temkin, about mass shootings over the weekend in Dayton and El Paso. Keller, of Middletown, Ohio, drew widespread criticism after she blamed the LGBTQ community, drag queen advocates, marijuana, video games, etc. for the attacks that left 32 dead. Temkin, in a statement, said, While our nation is in utter shock over the acts of violence in El Paso and Dayton, Republican State Representative Candace Keller took to social media to state why she thought these acts were happening. Candace Keller's Facebook post is shocking and utterly unjustifiable. Our nation is reeling from these senseless acts of violence, and public servants should be working to bring our communities together, not promoting divisiveness. I am calling on Candace Keller to resign. Butler County Sheriff Richard K. Jones, a Republican, tweeted, Candace Keller should resign at once. Shame, shame. Republican Attorney General Dave Yost joined the condemnation of the GOP legislator, tweeting, No, ma'am, the blame belongs to an evil man who killed those people. I'm going to take it one step further and say that the man who killed those people probably had in his mind or in his heart targets that Candace Keller is propping up for him to aim at. It is certainly true that in El Paso, the intent was to attack the immigrants, the families of people who are immigrants, the open borders supporters of folks or whatever she means by that. Anybody who has... Anybody, apparently anybody who has qualms about kids being kidnapped from their parents, locked in cages, parents deported, that anybody who has a problem with that in her mind is some sort of a snowflake, that that's kind of good news in the sense that many Republicans are rising up to criticize this Republican. The bad news is, at least at the time of this recording, as far as I can tell, she's still in office. So are these just, and I hate to ask these questions, because, but it's a, it's a mirror universe, different drummer segment. So instead of holding up some concept of unconditional positive regard, at least in this part of the show, I'm willing to go negative. I'm willing to go low here. Let's put it that way. And question whether the Ohio Republican Party chair, James Timken, was simply doing PR damage control. Or whether, unbeknownst to me, actual steps have been made by the Republican Party to remove this woman from office. Have her fellow legislators removed her from committee posts? Has she been isolated in other, in other ways in the legislative process? Have bills that she's proposed, including some that are allegedly self-serving, self-dealing bills, been fully stalled, fully stomped on in a legislative sense? Has the Republican Party just decided you're no longer a Republican, you're out of the party? It's not like Timken and others are powerless here. 
very bold, perhaps unprecedented steps could be made to directly and harshly censure Keller. And if those steps have not been taken, then isn't this all just a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing? Now, of course, that's me. I'm taking a look at this from a negative perspective. Because in different drummer segments, I typically don't do that. But this time I decided to go low instead of go high. That is, ironically, exactly the opposite of the advice that has been consistently given to our country by our different drummer this week, Michelle Obama. The Electoral College was an issue in in Inappropriate Conversations 35, and I mentioned it again in Inappropriate Conversations 191, False Political Prophecies. It came up in both contexts because in the year 2000 and again in the year 2016, the Electoral College has become a major issue. And while I stand by things I've said in those earlier episodes about the importance of recognizing that the Electoral College is a constitutional concept, and if I'm going to denounce someone like Mitch McConnell for failing to fully respect the intent and at times even the letter of the U.S. Constitution, I wouldn't want to make the same mistake myself. However, the results of the most recent election tell me that the intent our framers had by establishing the Electoral College has itself been undermined by our modern society. Electoral College existed as an idea to ensure that people who were running for office had to visit every state. A disproportionate amount of power among those original 13 states um, would go to the larger, more populous states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, at the expense of Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire. And by setting up the Electoral College the way it was, with the intentional disproportionate voice of being based on the number of people in Congress as it was, that it was supposed to make sure that you had to go visit those states. But what happens if we're now living in a world where there's another set of states, not based on population, that aren't getting the attention that they deserve? First, as I mentioned in Inappropriate Conversations 191, in the internet era, we don't have to worry about people in a rural section of Vermont hearing about what politicians think. Politicians don't have to get on a plane, fly there, get in a car, drive somewhere, gather a group of people together in a barn and say what they believe. The internet covers this. There is really no section of our country that I've been to where you can't access information online. So the constitutional concern that the framers might have had about some states being ignored because they were small and therefore uh, potential voters not understanding all of the issues, ridiculous. We totally understand the issues today. That's not a question. So what do I mean when I say that there is now states which get disproportionate visitation and representation? It's based on an idea that I've long rejected called red states and blue states. I don't reject it because it's not true. I reject it because I don't like it. It's at least possible that any state that we consider to be red today could become blue. Any state that we consider blue today could become red. There is this notion of purple states, and those are states that get all the visitation. States like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida. And what that means is that because, based on a two-party system that none of our constitutional framers were a fan of conceptually to begin with, but based on that two-party system, some candidates can go look and say, well, you know, California is a blue state. I don't need to spend much time there. Done. Wyoming, red state, don't need to visit there at all. Done. If Wyoming is underrepresented in some way by uh, campaigning of candidates, it's not because the state is small, it's because the state is red. And therefore, if that is the reason why we have 
a disproportionate lack of engagement across the board with presidential candidates across all states, then the Electoral College no longer provides a meaningful solution. That we should be going to some sort of a representative approach. Here's the reason I offer caution, though. The Electoral College is a constitutional idea. It would be nice if every state voted that its electors would be divided proportionally to the, uh, the way the vote actually came down inside the state. But that's more, more or less a state-by-state state thing. And you're more likely to get a change on a state-by-state state basis, to be honest, than you would be to get you know, three-fourths of the state or two-thirds of, of Congress to agree to put a constitutional amendment together that would correct something in the body of the Constitution. It's been a long time since this country put together an amendment that actually changed some of the fundamental Article 123 kind of principles inside the U.S. Constitution. So I'm correcting my point of view, though. I no longer believe that it's a big deal if people from the most populous states had disproportionate influence over the election, because if every state divvied up their electors proportionately to the vote within the state, then that would no longer be a problem. You don't have that 51% of Wisconsin voted in a certain way, and as a result, the election turns. You wouldn't have that issue. Of course, going state to state to persuade people to make those changes seems like more work than your average current American citizen is likely willing to do. Complain? We'll do that at ease. Change things by going door to door? That's a different matter altogether. And yet, I remain hopeful. And one of the reasons I remain hopeful is another correction that I would like to make. While I have said before, very publicly, and with good reasons and issues I've documented in past inappropriate conversations, I did not vote either time for Barack Obama. No, having not done that the first time because I wanted to vote for Ralph Nader, I still defend. I think that still makes sense. The second time, I should have voted for Obama, and I didn't. And the number one reason I've had this dramatic change of heart is that even before the 2016 election, based on campaign activities from September on of 2016, I had begun to reassess the first lady tenure of Michelle Obama. And although there's an old saying that says nobody votes for a first lady, looking back in retrospect, I'm beginning to wonder if I probably should have. Now, nobody's perfect. Different drummer segments are not about calling people out as perfect. But I'm going to carry forward in the future with other different drummers, using the same logic and approach I've used for all the ones in the past, using a concept of unconditional positive regard, trying to find the thing that is worthy of praise, more often than not relevant to the topic, even at times driving the topic, to say, I am going to be positive because when you weigh the pros and the cons, the pros outweigh, and in some cases, far outweigh the cons. It's history. And from about that time, 3,500, 3,000 B.C., until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. I've recently read Michelle Obama's 2018 book, Becoming, described on Wikipedia as a memoir. I actually wasn't sure when I was reading it how to describe it. Would it be autobiography? Would it be memoir? 
something else, something in between. Having read the book entirely or listened to the book on tape during driving trips on vacation this summer, uh, once entirely and once uh, and once again through the entire Cullet First Lady segment of the book, I'm still not sure whether it's a memoir or whether it's an autobiography. It's an interesting question that kind of doesn't matter, I suppose, right? If this is a bit of a book recommendation, which I don't think it is, but if it is, The Becoming Book has an interesting set of, of ideas that I'd like to bookend. So call this a mini book review, right in the middle of a different drummer segment. In the opening, in the preface, Michelle Obama talks about her dogs in her current residence hearing other dogs in other homes or yards barking and responding to that barking. And that these dogs were brought into the Obama household when they lived in the White House. It was one of the give and takes in terms of what the kids have to give up from a normal childhood perspective by being the children of the President of the United States. They were offered a dog, among other things, and they ended up with a couple dogs. But the dogs began their relationship with the Obama family and the Obama children as pets living inside the White House. Nothing unprecedented about pets living inside the White House. But in Obama's book, she kind of makes the call that from a sound perspective, the residential area of the White House is so completely insular that it was only after they moved out as a family that her dogs had probably ever heard, while inside a residence, other dogs outside barking. That the White House, at least from a sound perspective, was so well locked down. In her book, Becoming, she also talks about ways that even from a um, physical perspective, the White House very well locked down. That we're talking about somebody who was first lady during a period of time where people have shot bullets at the White House, where the bulletproof glass in the residential section of the White House needed to be replaced with new bulletproof glass because somebody who hated the president took shots at the White House in an attempt to injure him or his family. This is really what I predicted would happen in 2009. Now that I've looked at her memoir, I realize that my perspective was naive. The U.S. Secret Service is probably better than I thought at protecting the president and the president's family. But I was deeply worried, even in 2008, that this was going to lead to violence. And it absolutely did lead to attempts at violence. I don't want to guess. I don't want to presume that the person who fired the bullets and was arrested was a racist of any sort. Um, but racism is obviously one of the it's one of the usual suspects you'd bring in for an interview in a situation like that. Somebody who actually tried to break through a White House door with a knife, with again presumably intent to injure. Again, I don't want to go into an assumption that the attempt was to injure the the first lady or her daughters or the president himself. He might have had a beef with a secretary somewhere. But you know, clearly, physical attacks were made on the Obamas during their tenure in the White House. And who knows, that might actually be true of the past two or three years in the current residence of the White House. It's not something that's widely publicized, and for obviously really pretty good reasons. But she compares that sense of silence and insularity at the preface later on in the book when she was talking about the day that the Obergefell ruling came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, kind of balancing out the experience of rights across states in what we call the marriage equality decision. She was aware of the decision, but she was not aware of the crowd that had gathered to praise that decision out on the street in front of the White House. Because although she could see and had 
you know, kind of left her mind that it was going to happen, but she had a visual cue with the rainbow colors being projected onto the White House that, yes, somebody had mentioned that they might do that if the ruling came down. But she saw that, and it led her to say, oh, yeah, that happened. I wonder what's going on outside. And from a window, being able to see a huge crowd, but not actually being able to hear any of the things that were being said or sung. Being aware of the the uh, celebration, but not actually being able to experience it because of how locked down the White House was. Um, you know, I've heard Michelle Obama criticized by people in the past as not being a great writer. And it may be fair to say that, you know, at the end of the day, she's not actually really a writer in the traditional sense of the word. But this is good writing. This is very good writing. And part of the reason that I went with the book on tape, if the book on tape had been read by anybody else, I don't know if I would have gone that way. I might have sought the printed word. But I knew I was going to be on driving vacations. I was going to be in the car. And I wanted to hear what she had to say from her own voice, which is the product that I ended up kind of borrowing from the library to accomplish that task. And I listened, I listened back to the section from uh, near the end of the 2008 campaign all the way through to the end of the book, because what I was most interested in is her thought process around how to be a first lady. The reason I did that is because I have friends, friends who live in states like Oklahoma, for example, parts of the reddest of the red states in our country who have referred publicly to Michelle Obama as some sort of an abomination, that she's the worst first lady ever, and that she's a terrible person. The racists out there, luckily none of these none of these included references to monkeys and apes and other sort of stuff, but the racists out there have done that. At the time that the Obama presidency was coming to an end, and in reference very specifically to her husband, the president, I asked those same people to justify for me, with a specific example if possible, why Barack Obama, in their mind, was the worst president in the history of the United States of America. Because clearly, for that to be true, there would have to be one compelling example. And I'm open to multiple examples. I am. If I'd asked that question and somebody had rattled off a top ten list, I would have thanked them for giving me the information that I was seeking. Because even as somebody who had two opportunities to vote for Obama for president and turned both of them down, I still didn't have any sort of top three list, top ten list, not even a number one I could cite that would justify a claim that he was the worst president ever. And suddenly, despite all these people for five years, eight years, nine years, making claims about his complete insufficiency and so forth and so on, after eight years of leadership were over and we were looking back on it at that moment that Trump was elected, or right before even, I couldn't find anybody who could give me a one, one example. I actually had people who had made that claim. He's the worst president in the history of our country. Who said, well, you know, that was probably just a little bit of hyperbole. Um, I don't really think he's the worst president, so I don't have to answer your question. If I thought he was the worst president, I'd give you an answer. I'd blame it on whatever, Benghazi something. But because I now no longer feel that way, I no longer feel compelled to give you a reason. To me, that's intellectual cowardice. That's a lack of integrity. That's an insufficient apology. That if you've spent, say, five years railing about how awful this guy is, you can't come along when his presidency is over and say, oh, you didn't really mean it. It was all just talk. No. And so I'm doing the same thing now with Michelle Obama. And I did a little bit of it at the time, in the middle of 2016, to say, if you really think this is the worst first lady we've ever had, then tell me why. But what I got from these so-called Bible-believing Christians that I'm friends with over the years was a lot of talk about their opposition to everything she was trying to do. So let's take a quick look at what she was trying to do. Going back to the fact that even during the 
campaigning in 2008, she had spent a fair amount of time wondering what she should try to do, that she didn't want to try to be part of the government or some sort of a policy leader, but she also didn't want to be just somebody who was arm candy at state events. And it took her a while to sort of evolve her way of thinking on it. Her main initiatives were Let's Move, started with a garden on the grounds of the White House, which surprisingly to me, the Trump administration and Melania Trump in particular have left in place. Now, Melania is less likely than Michelle Obama to put on some gardening gloves and join some elementary school kids out there a couple times a year, even ceremonially weeding the garden. But she hasn't tilled it over and replaced it with flowers, which I thought was a real possibility. Now, I had friends that I no longer associate with directly that I went to church with for my entire life at one point. I mean, probably from the age of four and a half all the way to at least the middle of middle school or early high school. I attended youth group with these people all along. I went on retreats with these people. I went on mission trips with these people. These are people that I have had a long-standing Christian relationship. Tell me that they're opposed to this terrible first lady. And among the things they're opposed to is her efforts to improve the nutritional quality of meals in schools is absolutely offensive. Who in the hell does she think she is? I'm not even exaggerating. That Michelle Obama being in favor of better diet and exercise, better nutritional standards for school meals, was in some ways offensive. The Reach Higher program that she put together which was essentially an effort to try to ensure that, uh, quoting bettermakeroom.org slash reach higher, every student in the U.S. is taking charge of their future by completing their education past high school, whether at a professional training program, a community college, or a four-year college or university. Denounced by these people who were claiming that Michelle Obama was the worst in the history of first ladydom, because how dare she suggest that people who live on a farm and work on a farm are lesser than the rest of us, and that this education thing is just ruining our country by brainwashing people to be liberal, and all this sort of nonsense. Basically, this program was at its heart a mentoring concept. Let's take people who aren't maybe doing that well in school, maybe not definitely already on a fast track to college, and make sure that the people who actually need a helping hand get a helping hand and get the encouragement they need from people who actually are. Um, those who, like Michelle Obama, describe herself as somewhat lucky to have gotten the right help at the right time to make the right moves and the right decision to advance herself through high school graduation to college graduation to law school and so on. Recognizing that not everybody has those options is not in any way offensive. Well, the next one that she put out there was uh, Let Girls Learn. Bazaar.com, harpersbazaar.com slash culture slash features has an article that uh, was put out there, I believe, let's see if it's got a date, May of 2000, yeah, around, around May of 2017. This was shortly after the current president of the United States sort of dismantled the program. So it was an opportunity for Michelle Obama to speak to what to do next for her Let Girls Learn initiative. Now that the government was backing away from it uh, under the direct guidance of Donald Trump. The article says this, The former first couple launched Let's Girls Learn in 2015 to help young women in underprivileged countries pursue their education. In the fall of 2016, they bolstered financial support for the organization with over 5 million private sector commitments, hoping to ensure that the organization would continue after Obama's presidency. And 
that is kind of what she did. So this, again, this initiative to make sure the girls who are discriminated against by their countries, by their culture, including the girls in Africa who were kidnapped by a Islamist group, that girls being able to go to school and have the same educational opportunities as boys is simply good for our country. Good, in this case, for our world. You can imagine how somebody making sure that on an international level, girls are treated with the appropriate dignity and respect would be offensive to people like Rick Wiles, who identify as Christian, or like John MacArthur, who identify as Christian. Finally, the one that I wanted to cite, and the one that intrigued me most, was joining forces. Of the four initiatives during her tenure as First Lady, many of these were, to me, relatively quiet. The Garden and Let's Move was the, the one I was most aware of, because that was the one place, the one and only time I did this old friend from church, the dignity of engaging her in conversation. I challenged the idea that there was anything offensive about the let's move concept. I got a mouthful of, you know, idiotic right-wing vitriol back and said, you know what? I tried. The best you can do sometimes is try. But joining forces, the one that was intrigued me the most, because Michelle Obama kind of said that as she was beginning the process of campaigning for her husband, something she did reluctantly in 2008, it occurred to her that the U.S. military was something from her that she felt the most disconnected. She's maybe the least familiar with the the needs of people who are in the armed forces. And she and the vice presidential first lady, Jill Biden, were both very moved by some of the stories that they were hearing while campaigning about the struggles that the families of men who are deployed overseas experience. Joining forces really resonated with me, even though I also don't have a, a ton of direct family contact with people who are either still alive and had military experience or who've had military experience that they're really willing to open up and discuss. But one of the things that the families face as a challenge is that if I said, well, this person grew up in a military household, what's the first thing you're going to assume to be true? They moved around a lot. And that's absolutely true. You may, as the the spouse or the children of somebody who is serving the U.S. military, find that at times your address is an American military base or military community, and at times your address is overseas somewhere. But even if you spend most of your experience as the family of a serving U.S. military personnel, that you're moving from different state to different state quite a bit. And what the Bidens and Obamas recognized was that there was a significant opportunity for us to do that part better. That if you were a teacher, for example, or someone in the medical profession, moving from one state to another might make it impossible for you to get a job. You might be, in the course of four or six years of, of deployment of a, of a husband or a wife, you might be, as a teacher, trying to get yourself recertified a half dozen times in the course of those years. It would not be shocking if over a six-year span, a teacher was going through the process of being certified again three or four other times beyond their, their initial completion of educational requirements and the initial certification to teach in the first place. And that's not limited to just education. It's true in many other industries and businesses. It's also true that as somebody who's doing a job interview, as a manager or director of a department, you know, I, you almost have to be willfully indifferent to the notion that if the candidate that I like here for this job is, is a military wife, does that mean that I'm only going to have her in my organization for a short period of time? Because 
where she lives is not necessarily dictated by her or even her husband. It's dictated, it's dictated by the needs of the United States military. Michelle Obama met, along with Jill Biden, with industry leaders, with others, to ensure that some of these unintended barriers that negatively impact military families are dropped, are reduced, are removed, are addressed, or at least mitigated in one way or another, to where the difficulty just of being separated from your spouse where your spouse is in danger isn't just multiplied by not just change of address forms and turning on telephone and gas and all that other sort of stuff, but can I even get a job in the position that I'm well qualified and trained to do? Joining forces, not that all four of these initiatives don't have a ton of merit, but joining forces to me seemed like probably the point in time where if you were an American political conservative, if you're part of the religious right, can you really say Michelle Obama was the worst first lady in the history of our country when she made this a priority, and when this is one of the things that I think still stands from her time in office, um, I think that as a first lady, she might be among the very best. I'm not interested in making comparisons. I'm not going to put a top 10 list together um, any more than I was getting top 10 lists back from people who hated her husband and his time as president. I'm just saying that when I put, when I draw a line in the sand out there and say, if if you're a Christian and you're hearing what Rick Wiles is saying on his YouTube channel, and you're not denouncing it, I question your Christianity. If you say that you're a constitutional conservative, and you're not challenging the things that Mitch McConnell has done and is doing, if you're not challenging Donald Trump's behavior, then you're a hypocrite. You should be ashamed of yourself. And anybody who suggests that Michelle Obama could be in any way described as among the worst first ladies in the history of our country needs to reconcile that against compelling arguments that can be made are being made here, then no, no, she's actually one of the very best. Remember that she did all of this reluctantly. I don't, with maybe a couple of exceptions ever, I don't do different drummer segments by contacting the person and telling them, hey, I'm about to call you out as a different drummer. To me, my experience of these people is remote. I don't know them personally. They've influenced me all the same, but they've influenced me indirectly. So I'm offering that praise indirectly. But I'm offering that praise, I think, completely consistently with the things that Michelle Obama has said from multiple podiums, including the stage at a presidential party's convention. When other people go low, you go high. So I'm simultaneously going to reissue the challenge. If I'm missing something about Michelle Obama, if I've got something wrong about her as a person or a mother or a first lady then by all means educate me. But in the meantime, I'm going to go high. Just on the back of initiatives like Let's Move, Reach Higher, Let Girls Learn, Joining Forces in particular, give me an argument why somehow she was some kind of a monster by not just staying in the residence and filing her nails for eight years. Tell me why she did something wrong by getting her hands dirty in some of the best possible ways the dirt of the soil growing food that can be given to people who get their food from soup kitchens and you know food assistance. Tell me why that's wrong. Because between the years 2008 and 2016, I had a hell of a lot of conservative Christians telling me that everything she did was an abomination. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe I'm going to struggle from time to time to first keep these episodes under an hour (laughs) and to second consistently go high when others go low. But I wanted to take a look at what would happen if the different drummer was a negative thing and I leave this episode comfortable that it should remain a positive thing. And one of the inspirations for that is Michelle Obama. Other inspirations, though, have come from other past different drummers who actually make the list in the first place, not necessarily because they correct me when I'm wrong, although in this episode I've tried to correct myself a couple of times, but more because they point consistently to a better answer. I can't imagine how hard it would be to spend eight years living in a place where you were constantly under the bright lights and heavy scrutiny, where everything, every single thing you did from what you were to what you ate was criticized as something that was perhaps going to make America a worse place because you did it, to see the constant barrage of criticism, some justified but most unjustified, to your husband as president and the job he was doing, and still finish up strong. If there's an argument that the Obamas have not finished up strong, I need to hear it. I've asked some of the most ardent of his critics that I personally know. I've got nothing but crickets for answers to that question. And that alone tells me that this is a pretty good example of how to live your life. I've already provided some of the house cleaning information along the way. Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page. So does Walk the Earth. I'm on Twitter as IC underscore Greg, just like I am on SoundCloud as IC underscore Greg. One more time, the website is IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I do reply. Uh, it's Sometimes it's hard for me to respond in kind to requests, but... That's just the nature of uh, balancing work and family and, and podcasts, to be honest. But I do take the feedback I receive seriously. And in some cases, the feedback I receive, as it has in this episode, influences the things I decide to say and the direction I take the show in next. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.